hello and welcome to episode 169 of the 1099 for the week of October 8th, 2018. I'm your host, Josiah Renauden, and with me today is a producer at Polytron. And for the upcoming indie game Tunic and someone with marketing, PR, and production experience with a wide variety of teams and games, I was going to list them, but that would have taken forever. Felix Kramer. Felix, how are you doing today? I'm great. Thanks so much for having me. I have gotten more requests than almost anyone Everyone's always saying you got to talk to Felix at some point. This really? is the perfect 1000%. This is the perfect person to have on your show and this is actually the perfect time because about 5 months ago I picked up from Jacksonville, Florida, drove across the country with my dog and became a producer and a game developer and it was my first game development job. I was at GameSpot and IGN doing media before. So talking to another producer would have actually been more helpful sure. as I was making that transition to doing that. But I'm actually maybe even a better conversation now because we're doing similar stuff. And this yeah. might end up sounding like the dumbest question anyone's asked you, which is really maybe, I'm not sure if it's a high or a low bar, but I think it's important to start here. What exactly does a producer do in the video game industry? Because people can really contextualize what an artist is or what a gameplay designer is or someone who does audio design but when someone says i do game production i think there's sort of a moment of so wait what do you do so let's use your time on like video ball or capsule force for example what do you do on these projects so it, it really does it's very contextual based on the needs of the project right and there's different probably everybody listening understands that there's different um levels of like game whether you're just independent and you have a team and you're not being published or you're independent and you have a publisher or you are you know, double A and you publish games or you're a triple A studio, right? There's like lots of different tiers and a producer's role sort of shifts across those things, right? Um, and I would say that overall, though, in indie specifically, I cannot speak to triple A in indie, a producer sort of uh, stands at the intersection of all disciplines on the team. So stands at the intersection where art would need to speak to design and design would need to speak to programming and programming would need to speak, speak to uh, biz dev, right? Um, and then also often stands as the, the um, intersection between the team and a publisher. So in the case of Video Ball and Capsule Force, for example, a lot of my publishing um, and produ production experience came into play because I existed on the Iron Galaxy side, on the publisher side as a producer, and was trying to coordinate with the teams to make sure that things got done, right? I mean, I think a lot of people confuse developing a game and shipping a game as being the same thing. And they're not unrelated, obviously. One has to happen and for the other to happen. But shipping a game is a very different procedure than simply developing it. And a producer is a person that has those skills and can aid the team in doing that. I, I would say at least. What's it like working for Dave Lang? That is uh, it maybe was the hardest yeah, question. I'll ask yeah, you. no, it was good. It was good. It was a solid year and a bit, I guess. Like I was contract with them um, for their indies, and uh, it was a, it was a riot because it was different. It's it's not as different as you might think working with Dave <laughs> as it is like just hanging out with him or being on a show with him or doing a podcast with him, um, and uh, and. By that, I just mean like he's always down for anything so long as everyone commits, right? Like yep. he's super, super, um, not only is he flexible, but he's also just on board as soon as you get him excited about a thing, which is awesome in a boss, right? So uh, it was, I like to joke about how much of a nightmare it was. Yes, he is still in my phone as human nightmare. Uh, first name human, last name nightmare. But it was a joy. It was like a, an utter joy. Yeah, it was, it was wonderful. So. Working with indie teams, very often people are, 
wearing a lot of hats. They're juggling a lot of different roles. Yes, someone might be a combat designer, but maybe they have some audio experience and they'll start doing stuff like that. And you mentioned before, you don't have the AAA experience, but you have this indie experience. And a lot of your, if you look at your Twitter bio, if you look at your LinkedIn, anything like that, you see marketing, you see PR, you see production, which sometimes people group together, whether that be correct or incorrect. So how often do roles like marketing, PR, and production blend together when you're on these indie teams? And maybe the more important question there is, should those all be entirely separate roles or do you think it's okay if they start overlapping? Yeah. Okay. So this is an interesting one that um, I have a lot of feelings about, obviously. <laughs> um, I I tell the story a lot of times when I go do a talk or something, I get asked, you know, how did you get into this industry or how did you make, how did you fall into production? You would just go for programming. How did you end up in production? And my trajectory is simply that I left programming. I dropped out. I dropped out. I left programming because I saw a niche in indie in PR specifically, because my friends who were making small games didn't either didn't have the skill set or didn't know how to speak about their game to public, to press, just in general. And I, I saw that as a skill I had because I had done journalism before. And I thought, okay, I'll just, you know, I'll hop out of school and I'll join the games industry now. We'll see where this goes. And one of the first things that I encountered was that in doing marketing, I would turn to a team and say, cool, um, well, what, in order to write this press release or to figure out what, what this looks like, what consoles are you launching on or wh- where are you launching? And they would be like, I don't know, understand the question. I'll be like, well, are you coming out on PlayStation or are you coming out on? They're like, well, how would I know if I'm coming out on PlayStation? I, I don't have a contact there. And I was like, cool, 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 cool. All right, all right, all right. Uh, well, I know some people over there. Let's let's put you in touch, right? And um, I mean, it's not quite as simple as this. Like, it's not, it's not as linear as I'm about to make it sound, but it, yeah. It's, it's not not linear. So so I started doing that as well, where I, I, in the marketing process, I realized I had to know where we were launching and so and would have to know sort of like what the best time to do that is. And so I talk, spoke to the right people and fell into biz dev. From there, consoles would turn to me or, or anyone in business, any platform would turn to me and say, great, what's your timeline? When are you looking to launch? And I would turn back to the team and say, well, when are you looking to launch? And the team would say, well, I don't know, next year sometime. And I'd be like, well, what's your timeline like? And they would be like, I have... Again, no idea what you're talking about. What is that word? I'm like, right, right, cool, 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 cool. All right, uh, let's sit down and make a timeline based on your team and their availability and your skill sets and what you might need and where you are now and all this stuff. And so it, it kind of is, while they're not discrete from each other, definitely, there is a misunderstanding that marketing is a final product of something like production and uh, biz dev and PR, when in actual fact, marketing is more like the sum of those things from... Yeah. From pre- preferably from and ideally day zero, not when not after you're done developing the game, right? Day zero when you first think about the game, you start thinking about all these things simultaneously, and then you find people with the skill sets to fit those roles, right? And whether it's one person, which I highly I do not recommend, I very much would love teams to be have higher budgets, get more money, and be able to hire more people to do this stuff. Um, one person or three or more, even it depends on the size of your team. Um, they will all be working together nonstop because shipping starts at day zero uh, rather than at the end of your game, which is a thing we can get into in a bit here. I I do think they have to be very, very connected and on the same page constantly, but whether they need to be the same role, I, I, I lean towards absolutely not because it's just unreasonable to ask any one person to do all those things um, over the span of a development of a game, especially with uh, how volatile game development is in general and what the industry looks like and how we have no idea what it's going to look like. So, um, but yeah. 
it, it's just crazy how there are so many indie devs who might have great ideas or even great looking gifts or videos of what they're making. And they're like, I don't know when this is coming out. I don't know uh, what platforms. I don't really have any sort of schedule. Like we're not keeping milestones very much. We're kind of just making this and waiting. And that's sometimes it's going to work perfectly. You're going to strike gold and it's incredible. Like I have no idea what the Minecraft development was. Maybe it was completely unorganized. There was no production and boom, it just hits. But like most of the time, that's just not exactly feasible and like let's use tunic for example because tunic is made by is it just one person or is it one person and contractors uh if you mute the game mm-hmm. it is one person okay so it's uh andrew shoulders who uh does um art animation design writing and programming and then uh power up audio and audio and then terence lee life formed on uh, music and then me on production how how yes, I was. Yes. How is maybe the biggest question, and some of the smaller ones would be, how, what's it like managing someone who is doing all these things? It probably feels like this is their extreme passion. You wouldn't be committing this much time and effort into it otherwise. Do you are you making timelines? Are you making sure that Andrew is working only a certain number of hours a week so he doesn't give all of his weekends? And there's only so much you can do when it's an indie game that they're making. But the the huge benefit to this is you can organize things and schedule things that puts less of that focus on him and so he could just make the game but what has that process been like for someone who's doing so much yeah this is a really interesting uh question because a lot of people would assume that managing a team of eight which is like my team at neocab is eight plus people um and my team at you know tunic is one and a lot of people would assume well less people easier to manage um strongly disagree strongly disagree on every every axis uh it andrew is first of all the answer to how is that andrew is a dedicated talented uh individual who um has just been making a thing for as long as he needs to make it right i mean first of all andrew understands that the game is going to take as long as the game takes and that's key to making a game by yourself you just have to be okay with that and then you have to scope the game according to uh your resources which is the much much trickier part right so but uh, so that's the how the the techniques or the the uh, obstacles that come into play when you're producing a single human is that uh, anytime I have a meeting with my programmer, my designer, my animator, my writer, and my uh, artist are not working. Right. Okay. So anytime I take out of Andrew's time, I take out of all disciplines yeah. for the game. And anytime that we dedicate to one thing no other person on the team is working because they're all one person. And so that's something you have to keep in mind when you're building a timeline. Uh, and we do, yes, we do have a timeline. We've got, um, we have we have multiple timelines based on, uh, you know, something to track against is just what, what a timeline is really on a, on a project like this. It's not necessarily a milestone-based thing. It is much more a, this is our goal. This is where we would like to be. How are we doing with that? Oh, it turns out this thing that we thought would only take a week, took three weeks, right? Yeah. Oh, it turns out upgrading Unity ruined everything and we're, we're behind by X amount of time. That was a one-time thing until Unity decides to fuck us again and we'll just keep going, right? So, um, but really in those moments, what you have to know as a producer is that you are always speaking to your entire team if you're not careful. And so the stress you're putting on your programmer is also the stress you're putting on your artist. And anytime there is a demand, there's a pipeline, right? Anytime you're like, okay, well, I need art to get this to design so that design can get it to, you know, propose to programming and programming can implement it. It's all the same person. So he's carrying it all in his head and his heart every single day. And that is the burnout is the biggest worry. um, I would say with a one person team, 
um, or a small team even. Um, and the, the way around that is to attempt to scope continuously scope the game within your own capabilities and to be honest with each other, right? And to, to talk about it and to uh, make sure that you know your own limitations and that you take time. And I know that's impossible. Like I can't be there, right? Um, I also can't, I, I can't babysit anyone on the team. I, that's yeah. not my role and it's never something I would do. But but I am also here to remind people to take self-care, right? Like PAX, for example, PAX Prime uh, was in September, late August, and uh, Andrew would have had to fly, you know, take a whole day to fly there because from Halifax, there's no direct flight, I don't think. Uh, take a whole day to fly there, work PAX for five days, fly all the way back. That's an entire week. And then also would probably need a week off after that or a week to get back into the swing of things, right? Yeah. And if... Right now, if he's not developing the game, he should be resting. And PAX is neither of those things. Nope. So the call the call has to be made at some point. Are you coming to something like this or not? And the answer is almost almost always, if, if it's something like this, the answer is not. Because I'd rather you rest, right? I'd rather you take that time off entirely, go hang out, go, you know, just walk away from your computer for a while. Um, because you're getting more done by doing that than coming to PAX, which sounds counterintuitive. You know, it sounds, it doesn't feel that way in the moment, but it's so important to know and to, uh, to assert, um, as both a producer and a friend in those moments. And Andrew's really great. He knows his, he's very experienced. He made games before this. He didn't make 3d games before this. I will say this is his first 3d game, which is infuriating because it's so beautiful and he's so good. And also he's nice and good looking and it's just, oh, come on, <laughs> like save any of it for the rest of us. But but no, he has made games before and been a producer before in his field. Um, and that means that it's a, it is much easier to coordinate with an external producer than it is if you've never had that experience, right? So I'm lucky that way. I'm very, very lucky that way that um, he has a head on his shoulders and doesn't push himself too, too hard. Is he carving out like required vacation time for himself? You did mention burnout. I would assume just, again, your own thing. It's, it's hard to like, I talked to um, the Sable developers who are working out oh, of a yeah. shed. And that's, yep. I, I talked about burnout with them because like, it's just your development studio is right there. You just walk outside, there's a shed and you can do that anytime. You can do that Saturday night at, you know, 2 a.m. if you really feel like you have to or you want to. So how, does he kind of schedule stuff like that? Um, I wouldn't say he schedules it. I think um, probably we should schedule it more. The problem with scheduling when you're such a small team is that if you fall behind, it is very difficult to not make the decision to just push your, push your vacation. Right. Yeah. If you're going to, because it's hard to say, oh, I'm going to interrupt myself right now while I'm on a roll in three of my five disciplines to go take time away, even though I'm feeling really good. Right. The tendency is to slow down, recognize when you're slowing down, and go, okay, wait, I got to step away for a week, and not necessarily healthy. I will, uh, I will say, everyone should take time off and schedule time off and go on that time off. <laughs> uh, actually, leave your home, um, but. Uh, I, I understand the tendency and the and the desire to to let vacation come at opportune moments when it makes the most sense, right? So um, he definitely has scheduled. He definitely does do week trips, places, and that kind of stuff. Um, I don't, which is a bigger problem. I need to do that more. I need to take my own advice more. I think it's difficult when you're working working across different teams um, that have different timelines those moments never come, right? You have to schedule it because those moments that I was talking about where it's an opportune moment, oh, cool, it's a lull in all of my teams is never going to happen, right? I work on four or five different teams. So um, I do have to schedule those. And But when you're a solo developer, I think it's a little easier to say, well, as soon as I reach this point, I'll take some well-deserved time off. And uh, I think that's more how we work over at Tunic. 
you're probably one of the only people who has seen just a whole bunch of tunic firsthand. So for mm-hmm. people who haven't been able to see it, what about it beyond like visuals, of course, really stand out. But is there anything in specific that people might not know about that you're most excited about it? We have so many secrets. So, I mean, the game was originally called Secret Legend. And uh, funny story there, it's it, it had excellent SEO. Like, mm-hmm. no problem when you Googled Secret Legend. We were the only thing that came up somehow. Uh, but no one could remember what it was called. <laughs> Uh, you would you would say people at PAX still come up and they're like, oh yeah, it was called something before, Secret of, Legend of, like Secret Fox, and we're like, yeah, sure, Secret Fox, why not? Yeah, <laughs> uh, but um, that name is not just a name; it really is part of the game. We have so many um, lovely, subtle rewards for exploring in this game and uh we want you to feel really tiny in a really big world even if the world isn't actually that big right even if the game is not that huge this feeling of being very small in a in a thing that is much bigger than you and and not somewhere you're supposed to be i think is um something i'm very excited for to see whether people get that feeling or not and so far with the demos they have um there's those big moments where you encounter something that is uh, very clearly hostile in a way that other things haven't been or a boss or anything like that where you suddenly realize like oh I'm trespassing and uh, and I, I don't I'm I was just being cute but uh, also now I gotta fight this thing I guess <laughs> and uh, and I really I, and I get that feeling from other games sometimes and I'm really hoping that we can nail it in this one I think that that's the thing I'm most excited about is to see how people uh, react to those those mysteries and and how you can solve them so do you enjoy when people kind of have the derivative comparisons to other games someone like oh it's like furry legend of zelda or it is like uh there's actually the one that stood out to me when i saw it at e3 was um 3d dot game heroes which came out i think at ps3 that was legend of zelda but like really blocky and interesting looking like that as someone who considers the the pr and the marketing aspect of that is that something you see and you're like awesome they're getting it or would you prefer people are kind of defining it by its own terms I mean, no one can define anything by their own terms unless they've experienced it, right? I mean, I'm happy after people play it, I'm going to be excited to see what people have to say, especially the differences, the delta between what they originally drew comparison to and what it ended up being, right? Um, I love I love it. My favorite thing is that when people walk up, they say, oh, it's like Free Legend of Zelda. And then after they've played, they're like, ah, oh, that was like some Dark Souls shit. Yeah. And you're like, yeah, that's that's great. I'm glad that you played and came out of it, you know, walked in with Secret of Mana and walked out with Bloodborne. And uh, and that's super cool, right? And we're hoping that people, that it draws a crowd that um, likes the same stuff we like, right? I mean, that's part of making a game is that you make, uh, no, one, no one's ever come up with an original idea, right? So you're making um, things that are homage to things you love. And I always welcome that always. I mean, I would never recommend that a game uses those in their pitch. I would never say like a perfect pitch is saying furry legend of Zelda. Um, it is a great secondary pitch. It's a great thing to let consumers or like players come up with on their own. Um, but uh, it's a joy to hear no matter what. I love it. Yeah. Do you think there's, and I'm not asking you to throw shade on any other teams. Do you think there are enough indie teams that do have producers on board to make sure things are going according to at least some sort of schedule to have some semblance of order in that way? Because we talked about before, some people just don't have that where it's, well, we're making a game. We'll see what happens. It'll come out whenever. Do you think we're going to see a trend toward more of this where people have these this, this, this organizational structure to make sure that maybe there's not as much crunch? Maybe there's more communication with with publishers on or uh, console makers on what this is going to be on just to have an overall, maybe even the smaller indies to have some sort of backbone. I'm really glad you can't see my face. (laughs) 
Uh, right now? Okay, so again, feelings, lots of them. Um, one, I think that no teams, there are not enough teams out there that have producers and or that understand the value of a producer or that trust producers. And I think that that stems from quite a few things. One, not understanding the role is totally understandable. Like that's, that's a completely reasonable thing to not understand. It is a very strange um, uh, position if you've never made a game before or if your last game was, did just fine with two people, right? Like if you've successfully made a game before without a producer, you may think forever, I never need one. Um, also, if you come for AAA and you started your own studio, the tendency is to think that producers are uh, only there as gatekeepers for investors um, and those investors being maybe people, you know, executives at your major company um, or uh, whatever, C-level people. Mm. And so oftentimes your rule as a producer in AAA is to just say no to a team or to block things or to or to promise things that are not promisable, right? Like, or to make false promises. Um, and so that's really toxic. Uh, it's definitely not the way it works in indie. And I will say that the value of a producer, I'm hoping, will increase over the next three, four, five years um, with the model that we're seeing uh, in indie now it's it, basically that you are beholden to someone, right? Like most indie teams now that are have higher budgets are getting that money from a publisher. Yeah. And so they are beholden to a thing, whether it is uh, a timeline they've come up with or a launch date that is very good for them, right? Like a platform has promised them a thing and they have to get there. Um, and the way to manage that is to find someone with the skill set and with the experience in shipping games that can help you with that, right? Can be that intersection and, and, that, and that guide. Um, and to do it early. And I think um, I think there's no way around it. I mean, maybe there is a way around it and we all crash and burn and everybody everybody crunches until they die uh, and we're all spread super, super thin. Um, I don't know how that, I don't know what that world looks like beyond like ashes. Um, but I do know that with more people becoming aware that having a producer is important uh, more producers should show show up magically. That's a formula, right? Yeah, it's like that's how that put, works. Yeah, you put like peas in a and rags in a bathtub, and you get rats. It's the same thing, right? Yeah, like you, we have to come from somewhere, and uh, and I'm really hoping that the the only way we can do it really is to be valued more and to increase the value of a producer in the industry, and then from there, hopefully, see more people getting hired and to reduce stress on developers. You know, I mean. I, I hate saying it that way because I think production is development. Personally speaking, I think production is design. Yeah. It's just big picture design. And without a producer and without someone holding that big picture in their head at all times, while looking at the, the, the little, the little picture of the details and doing it simultaneously, holding both of those things simultaneously. Um, I just don't know how any game ships. Like I literally don't know how, yeah. I mean, every game's a miracle, right? But like, I just don't know how games ship. Um, and I guess the answer is like with a lot of pain, and uh, a lot of burnout, right? So, yeah, and yeah. I've only worked on this one team now, and I've been a producer, and I have a you know we have a head of production, so there's two on the team, and I couldn't imagine this thing without. I'm not giving myself credit in any capacity, but just understanding Please the do. role that that producer plays. I'm like, man, what would this be like if if there wasn't someone doing that? And I do think that that general awareness needs to keep going up. That hopefully people see success stories on indie teams with producers and then they say oh we should have this we know how tough that last game was i mean hopefully you don't have to go through a really shitty three four years to see you know to be like okay we need to actually change this but it might be the way this goes i mean have you 
Are there any specific examples in your mind, whether it be something you've worked on or something you've kind of observed from a distance where you saw smart production really help an indie team? Are there examples out there that you try to tell people about? I mean, there are definitely. So it's tough, right? Because like when you learn how the sausage is made, you understand that no sausage is perfect. Mm-hmm. Um, but so I, so I can name drop some people and I know that they would say like, no, don't use me as an example because, <laughs> uh, but like, you know, uh, Kid Fox Games, for example, who Tanya is a huge perf- um, a proponent for no crunch. Um, and she is, uh, they're making uh, Boyfriend Dungeon. I'm not sure if I, sorry, I didn't mention. So they're making Boyfriend Dungeon and they made Moon Hunters and Shrouded Isle and a few other games. And um, she is a huge, um, uh, I mean, I would call her an activist in every way possible, but uh, when it comes to game development, uh, she really, really advocates for the lack of crunch. And that's a really tough thing for a studio head to do uh, because you know what's on the line and you know how difficult it is to make games and you know if you don't crunch, um, you are making a choice to probably delay or push out or say no to opportunities sometimes, right? Yeah. And the the coolest thing about that is that she sees the value, which I, I hope someday we all see, in um, you know not being, not having FOMO. It's almost like not having FOMO in the... <laughs> It really is like business yeah. FOMO, right? It's almost like not having business, business FOMO. FOMO like, is the greatest but, term I've ever heard. <laughs> but but this moment where you're like, oh, but this this opportunity is arising, and if we just launch by this day, we can get in, you know. Uh, and then you push everybody really hard, and the game's not as good as it could be, and your people aren't as happy as they could be, and your studio's not as as healthy as it should be, right? And but in that moment, making that educated, like just like rolling that wisdom check and making sure you know in that moment, this is not worth it. Uh, it's not worth killing ourselves, right? Yeah. Like what, how much do you value your lives like on the team, right? Like it really is your, it's just your lives. That's all it is. It's just your lives, right? And yeah. and knowing that. So I think, I think people like um, Tanya and, and her team are incredible and such an inspiration in the industry in general. Uh, and I, I know there are other teams as well. Like I know um, there are people who work really, really hard and don't crunch and ship within a short amount of time. Like Oxenfree was a game that was made in like, like door to door or something like 15 months oh my god like bonkers bonkers wild 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 and i would love to also say like it would be nice if i could say like nobody crunched on that team i just know how hard everybody worked right nobody crunched in the sense of like we're going to stay for three days straight and sleep under our desks which is like the definition of crunch to a lot of people but that shouldn't be our big bar that's like that's that's wild to think that that's our bar is like this triple a version of i'm not going to pay you over time i'm going to work you into the ground you're not getting any credit for this uh crunch really needs we need to bring that back and and say that crunch is this um is working harder than what you're capable of in the moment like when you start to lose steam and when you're no longer doing the best job you can you've entered like some spectrum of crunch right? That's just all there is to it. And you've got to just go to bed or get a meal or whatever, you know, eat chicken nuggets in the bathtub and (laughs) and, uh, whatever it is you need to do, you need to do it. Right. And then come back to it later because that will be the best for the game. Budget makes that really difficult. Uh, Time and opportunity make that really difficult, but I'm hoping that it just gets better over time. Yeah. What crunch means from team to team and from indie to AAA seems to be just all over the place. You have like the telltale experience that happened recently where people are talking about working 
you know, 80 hours every week for just a long ass stretch working weekends. And like you mentioned, not getting the credit, not getting overtime, but then there is just the, well, instead of 45 hours this week, I'm going to work 50. I'm going to work harder. I'm going to, it's going to be a full focus because everyone, everyone has the moments where suddenly like, oh, we're going to do a snack for like an hour or something like that, grab a drink, or maybe I'm just not fully focused on the work and I'm doing a little bit of other things. And it's just the way your brain works that you can kind of just fill the same number of hours with a different level of effort. So mm-hmm. I, I think we got to change the definition of some of the stuff Absolutely. and the goalposts on some of this stuff so that crunch just doesn't mean, well, there goes my life for three months. Instead, it's, well, I'm going to come home more tired because I've put a lot more into this to make sure we're hitting certain things, but I don't have to stay until midnight at the office. I can still have a life. And that's the important part about all of this. Yeah. I'm not sure why we're expected to sacrifice our lives for video games. Like it it is, it is an expectation. Um, And we do it. So many people do it. I mean, I do it and I, most of the indie devs I know do it. And it is, uh, it's wild. Like, I just don't understand why, but we keep doing it over and over again. Right. And like, I know, I know why for myself, I know why. And it's, it's that there are some excellent people that need to work on a thing and have passion for a thing. And all you want to do is support them, right? All you want to do is give those people what they need to create this thing and to do this incredible people doing impossible things. Right. And when you meet those people, you want to give your whole life to them. You want to just be like, absolutely. Whatever I can do. And then, and then we're all, and then we're all in a spiral. (laughs) We're all doing it. But, and that's what keeps, that's what keeps me here. Right. Is that I keep meeting, incredible people doing impossible things and yeah and that's the great part but also it must be exhausting to devote your life to something like that let's say again let's use the 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 develop andrew that we were talking about before and you do get some of these incredible emails from people who talk about how important that game has been to them but also you you do like the fucking spider-man puddle situation where Mm -hmm. for this entire stretch all people talk about is this stupid puddle change and here's these people that are working like you said, they're devoting their life to this. In a lot of cases, I've heard some stories people say that Spider-Man wasn't crazy crunch or anything like that. But there's going to be people who are working weekends and giving up time. And all people are saying is, oh, look at these fucking puddles. So there's definitely the, I think if the deeper I get into the game I'm working on now, the more I'm just going to stay away from Twitter. The more I'm going to stay away from stuff like that. And now it's, did you say, were you in media for a bit? Um, yeah, so I was a li- for, for a hot second. For a hot second. Did you did you review games at all? I did. Yeah, I did some previews and reviews and stuff like that way back in the day. I was actually just looking at one of the ones I did uh, on Destructoid.com for a oh wow for a Halo game for ODST <laughs> for not even ODST a preview for ODST's Firefight. I loved I loved ODST. It's my favorite. Game. It's a great game. Yeah, it's really it, good. <laughs> would you rev- let's say you go back? Would you review games differently? And I think I've had to think about this a lot because I don't think you should have to consider the hours someone worked when you were reviewing a product because you're you're saying whether you think this thing is good or not or valid or not or whether it achieved a certain goal or not or if that goal was valid to begin with or not. But if you went back and suddenly decided you wanted to review games at GameSpot or IGN or Polygon or wherever, would you review them very differently now that you have this experience? That is a fantastic question. Oh man, that is a that's an ugly question. I have it's to a be, hard one for that's me. A really I've only ugly been question. Five months, and I'm yeah. still like, I don't know. So okay, so yes and no, right? I think I would have better perspective on um, what what parts of my gamer experience were entitlement, and what parts of my game experience were enjoyment. I think that that difference 
is so so important while reviewing a game um, because you are I I think everyone is in, is welcome to talk about their enjoyment of a game. I don't think anyone should be able to speak about their entitlement to a game, right? And like I th- I think that is. I, like if you asked me right now to describe two sentences, one of which was each, I probably couldn't do it. But I think I have read and written some pieces that were very entitled and didn't understand that uh, there was a way to talk about it from a personal and like enjoyment point of view rather than uh, what the developers should or should not be doing. I mean, like as soon as you start like like dev splaining, yes. You know, you're you're out of your element. It just doesn't make any sense to do it anymore. Backseat know? developing in a review, I don't think that has any place. There's yeah. there's very very select moments where you, if something is just so out of place or so strange, where you have to question why it was there. But there's definitely this this. Well, I've read a lot of it where it's just what you don't you've never made games. You shouldn't be sitting here saying this is what should have happened without an understanding of why it didn't. Right, and I went to school for journalism. I, I did. I did my first degree was in journalism, and. We were taught to a ask questions yep. and b find the person who can answer them, not not skip the question and answer it ourselves, right? Like that's just not a thing you do. But it's funny because in entertainment writing, uh, as gamers, we consider ourselves the experts in the experience, um, and and the, we rope oftentimes the development into that experience. That's just a thing we do, and it's because in film you're allowed to say like, oh, I really enjoyed this lighting. Um, let's talk about that lighting. Let's do yeah. a little bit of research and then talk about why we like the why we like the lighting, right? Um, but in games, when you say I really enjoyed this lighting or I didn't like this lighting, there's there's a lot more there. There's the buried entry on learning about lighting in video games is like seven layers deep, and the dip is just disgusting. It's like the grossest seven layer dip you've ever had. <laughs> it includes like multiple engines and like all sorts of fucking like shaders and just garbage that that you know, people who are experts at it have no idea what they're doing half the time. It's so definitely it's like, not like cheese and meat or anything. No, like no, it's, it's like, like, it's like, oh, it's like ground up kale. And yeah. There's like some weird garlic in there, but it's not good garlic. <laughs> no, it's fucking old and it's been sitting out a little bit. So it's yeah, got that it's, crust it's like, on the top. Oh, great. It's kind of warm and it really shouldn't be warm. And it's got peas. It's got like mashed. It. You thought it was avocado, but it's just mashed peas. It's that. Yeah. There yeah. Is, but yeah. There's, there's definitely like some okay thing like in the middle, but it's sure. not worth digging through the shit. God, I am now just like if I was hungry before, I am the opposite of hungry now. That is unsettling. I oh, this is not chicken nuggets in a bathtub anymore. No, it is not chicken nuggets in a bathtub. Yeah, but yeah, I mean, I mean that's that's kind of where I'm at with the review thing. Where I, I do think there is a certain level of if I ever did backseat develop, which I, at this point I you, you write enough reviews, you don't even remember. Uh, I hope I didn't, but that's the stuff that I think I would change. And I must I, have. There's no way I did. There's no way. I mean, it's there's just no it's how that stuff yeah. happens. Yeah. We. We were talking before also about the, the the PR and marketing side of indie games, and before back in the, you know two thousand seven two thousand eight when indie games on Xbox Live were really starting to come into prominence, it felt like as long as you had a good Metacritic score and, and an interesting look, suddenly people are just buying that thing. But now there's just so much out there that it takes just entirely new things to stand out. Do you think indie games right now are relying too heavily on word of mouth and just the hope for a good Metacritic score over smart PR and marketing. And I hate to use this example again, because I've used it multiple times in the podcast, but uh, Cellar Door Games, who was on the Teddy Lee was on the show talking about Full Metal Furies. And that is the game that's come after Rogue Legacy. And he was very open about that game not performing well at launch. And I think it's an incredible game and Rogue Legacy blew up. 
but here's this new game they come out with five years later and they didn't really market it maybe in the in the best way or put that much money behind marketing and full metal furies comes out and no one really knows what it is but it's one of my favorite games of the year it's really interesting co-op take and it's the perfect follow-up to something like rogue legacy so do you think there's enough thought in what are we going to do once this thing comes out to make sure that the quality shines through but also all that work is worth it in terms of getting some sort of sales figures Okay, so I will preface everything I'm about to say with the statement that uh, I don't know anymore. I think yeah. I think if you had asked me this two or three years ago, I would have said, I know now, and in three years, I'm going to not know anymore, so we better all get, get it done now. Um, and I was right, which is nice, but also terrible. Um, I think there were conditions upon which, if you met them, your game was successful in 2007, in 2010, even in 2015. I think there were there was a perfect storm of conditions that if you met them, you were like, cool, I was seen and I, I my game did really, really well. And uh, Stanley Parable, great example of that kind of thing where like a demo back then worked really well and the game came out and it was weird enough and quirky enough and word of mouth just like exploded it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but nowadays you can put a ton of money into marketing and PR and get a ton of reviews and not, or critical acclaim, let's say critical acclaim. You can get a ton of critical acclaim and not see uh, financial success in, in any way. Right. I mean, where the water tastes like wine is an excellent example of this, where that game had a lot of marketing and a lot of really interesting marketing. Right. I mean, you get sting to narrate your game and it's a, it's, it's an interesting thing, right? It's a hook. It's an interesting thing. And, uh, and then you launch the game and you realize that it doesn't matter because maybe there was either not a market for it, or maybe the game wasn't marketed to the right people, or maybe it wasn't positioned correctly. And the difference between positioning and marketing, um, is subtle, but it is there in that positioning is sort of, um, how you position your game within the industry and, and to target a demographic and marketing is just the messaging that you use to do that. Right. And so I, I feel like there are many more things now to think about than there were in 2008, right? In in 2008, there were only three things to think about what console you're coming out on. uh, Yeah. What, what, what pixel, which pixel art you've got, what palette you're using uh, and uh, whether you're under under $10, right? Like those were sort of the, the, as Lefez got hate for being $10, which I still to this day, I'm baffled by just baffled the, the scope and size of that game and the amount of people that were angry that it cost $10. How much do you think that would be today? I have opinions about how much games should be, right? Yeah. Like I am very upset at some games that I will not name for launching at a too low a price. Fire, <laughs> Firewatch, Firewatch. I'm so mad at it because like they set the bar at uh, at like, here's the fidelity uh, you can expect for $20 now, right? Yep. And like, I understand why people launch at $20. It is an excellent price point. It makes you the most money. Uh, it's really good. Uh, but for the rest of us who are trying to make games, the lower we br- drop that bar, the less we can expect people to pay it, right? Mm. And I think, Fez, I would have tried to sell it for at least $20, at least double. Um, like, I don't know. I mean, I can't now. It's not like I can launch it on Switch for 20 bucks. Yeah, that might be weird, <laughs> would but be I would, it would really be insane funny, if you though. saw that for 10 on Switch. I mean, that's what, how, what are we going to do? Okay, man. Right, man. right. Yeah. And, and this is, these are the types of conversations that I 
that I have a lot with people where it's like the how the trajectory of how we've changed over time uh, in the industry in general, India in, in general, and and what matters now? What matters? Like, does marketing matter? Does uh, a demo on Steam matter? Does uh, having a Discord with a community matter? Like, the answer is we don't. We have no fucking idea. Yeah. We have no clue. So we just try to do as many as you can, as well as you can. Right? You pick and choose. You can only do so many, so you can't do all of them. But you sort of sit and you pick and choose. Where is our skill set? What can we do? Cool. We'll hire hire a publisher who's very good at marketing. We're gonna their marketing is taken care of. We're going to do a positioning workshop with some consultants who are able to help us position our game and find out who really wants our game, and then we'll communicate with marketing. Okay, great. We're going to start a Discord and see who's interested. We're gonna run some fan art contests and some stuff. Let's see, let's see what we get, right? And in those moments, you are just praying. You're just hoping and praying that any one of those things is gonna work and that you're gonna find your champion, whether your champion is in uh, your your target audience, or whether your champion is um, at a platform, or whether your champion is you know a streamer or someone who is also a community leader who will will help you you know sort of the name of the game, and and it's tough because with Rogue Legacy especially. Uh, and and then full metal full metal. I have trouble with my R's, and it is the no. You're totally fine. Well, I was I accidentally called it full metal. Uh furries when furries? i first started talking about it maybe yeah. directly on the podcast which again is an entirely different cool. video game but it's yeah full metal fury uh is it though I just, anyway yeah um <laughs> but but i i just personally think like that there's nothing it's not that there's nothing they could have done right that, that's not what i'm trying to say but what would the plan have been and would it have worked? I, can't, I, I literally can't tell you the solution. There's no solution is what I'm trying to say, right? There's no, yeah. no, and that's a scary thing to tell indies. It's a scary thing to stand up in front of people, aspiring devs, especially when they give talks to, to say out loud. But I think it's an important thing to say because it really is, we're at the cusp of a thing. We're trying to figure it out together. The more data we have, the better we can, we can at least adjust and, you know, recalibrate and hopefully find uh, the sweet spot for what does success look like? And and the answer is like probably less than what it looked like before. Yeah. Like probably we're just not, no one is going to be as successful. There will be breakout hit. Like don't, don't get me wrong. There's going to be the whatever Undertale or whatever. I don't know why Undertale is the only game that came to the, mind. The, I guess now, does PUBG count? Can PUBG count as like a indie success? Huh. Yes. Yeah, like it's it's something I've grappled with where I'm like, is that the next example of thing that exploded that is an indie team, I guess? Sure. Labeling very, these is so hard now. And that's a but that's a different tier of explosion, right? I yeah. mean that that is not even close to like when I say explosion, I'm talking about like Meat Boy and Fez and yeah. whatever, Octodad and stuff like that, where it's like the or Night in the Woods and you know, stuff like that where you're like, This was a big hit, it made these people like significant money. Um, but PUBG is just on its own level, right? Yeah. Like I can't, I can't even imagine trying to, uh, compare, uh, it's, it's, <laughs> my partner and I have been talking a lot about it being like a dog show. Yeah. Everything in life is like a dog show now to me, but, uh, so, so bear with me for a second. But like, <laughs> I can't compare PUBG to like, uh, Night in the Woods because even though the, both teams were sufficiently small and they both started with like a, a budget that was tiny and they both were successful, like PUBG is a Sheba and like Night in the Woods is a cat in a dog show. Uh, but like, like, like they are each their own category. And I can say like in the category of this type of dog poodles, 
this is the best poodle, but I can't compare the poodle to the sheep, right? And like, I think that's where it's coming down to me. It's like each of these games can be best in their own, like they can have success, huge breakout success, but I will still refer to them both as breakouts. Like I will still yeah. say, even though one of them is wildly, vastly greater than the other on all axes. But um, yeah, I don't know. Uh, you're asking me hard questions. That's what I'm here for. <laughs> <laughs> it's also like, I mean, even a similar hard question is something like PUBG that comes out early access that you, you talked before about no one really knows what is going to work for a specific project. There's always going to be quote unquote blueprints to follow. And that was when I started this podcast, it was initially this advice show for games media. And I would talk to people about, hey, how did you get into this? Or how'd you get in development? And there's all these blueprints out there, but none of the blueprints are going to work if your game is a shooter versus a 3D platformer or this artsy game versus this super violent, non-artsy in your face type. And the early access thing is super important to talk about now because building a community and finding that superhero or that, 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 that spokesperson in the community if, is the best way to do that early access so you start early something like dead cells actually and then a year later that comes out and you already have this established base and this critical reception and the, this this foundation to go off of or is there a concern of something like uh, realm royale or whatever where that comes out and explodes and now not that many people are playing it and by the time it comes out people are like oh that's that's old news where it's not worth talking about even the early access question is changing how people are discussing this yeah definitely i mean with early access, the thing I tell devs the most is that um, best case scenario, you are uh, losing your launch day. It doesn't. I don't. I don't care like whether you were successful or not. Not like best case scenario, you are losing the opportunity to launch fully and get big coverage and a lot of people interested in the moment. Yep. And worst case scenario, you don't make enough money off early access to fund your game and you get and you lose your launch day. Right. Yep. Like you have to be okay with. You have to come. To terms with that possibility or likelihood or certainty even um because the amount of people that get both they get to like early access get, make enough money to keep making their game and then have a big launch is basically zero so it's effectively zero right um in all the games in early access at least uh it, it there is something to be said for some games benefiting from cultivating you know their community uh, what games those are feels arbitrary like for there are lots of games that i would assume would do great in early access that don't. And lots of games that I, I'm sure they were a good fit, but I didn't think they were going to be major hits and they do great, right? Yeah. So um, it's again, it's the same thing as a launch insofar as you are hoping to hit the right demographic at the right time with the right sale or, or not sale, but the right uh, uh, product. And, and what those conditions are, we still don't, I mean, someone must know, uh, I guess they don't. I guess nobody knows. Yeah, but if someone does, if anyone knew, hopefully they'd speak up and fix yeah, this call shit. Me. And be like, hey, by yeah. the way, this is actually how you do this stuff. Everyone's like, oh, yeah. well, that could have helped yeah. me a long time ago. Exactly. Yeah. Someone's just holding a secret. It's not me. So yeah, that yeah. person's going to be rich. Um, yeah. We talked before about devoting lives to games, especially like on an indie scale that happens very often. And judging by everything you said, your website and your LinkedIn, you're balancing multiple projects at once. And I'm a producer on a single game and it takes up all of my mental capacity where I couldn't imagine adding anything to that. So simply put, we said how before with Andrew, but how do you do what you do? How do you balance different schedules, different projects, different teams? Is this, are you at max capacity right now? Are you beyond max capacity? Was it intentional to work on this many things at once? Oof. Um, so Yes, I'm. I'm. I am absolutely at max. I'm. I'm. I'm over max capacity right now, and I'm definitely downsizing into the new year for sure. Um, 
No, not intentional. Uh, you know, you you meet wonderful people. You meet incredible people doing impossible things, and you want to help them, and you stretch yourself too thin, right? And I and I know that not only have I done that, but most of the people that I meet that I love have done that too. Um, logistically speaking, it's actually quite simple. I only give X amount of hours to each team, such that I'm only working four X of those hours in a week. Yeah. Um, that does mean that not everything gets done. It does mean that I'm not a full-time producer at any of those places. Um, and some of those places wouldn't benefit from a full-time producer. Some of those places are in some of those teams and some of those projects are in development such that they need, you know, se seven to 10 hours a week of a producer, uh, sort of like a couple hours a day um, to check in, to be that intersection, to hold the project, to, to track uh, development against a timeline that we've all made together uh, and to have one-on-ones with the team members and make sure everybody's doing well, right? To, to hear people out and to to know where we're at. And that's sort of what I am on something like NeoCab, right? Where they have a they have a publisher who helps them with a lot of things um, and has taken a lot off my plate in a really great way. Uh, and and then internally on the team, what they need is someone there to, uh, to talk through it. So stuff like that, it's easy to do multiple projects because you're just uh, there for 10 hours a week. So you can do... Now, context flipping is its own thing. If you are not good at context flipping, this is not the job, no matter what, right? Being being freelance is um, pretty incredible. I'm looking to probably hire someone in the next little while. And I, for a long time, I sat and thought about how I would train someone to do what I do. And the only thing I can think of right now is to literally hire someone to come live with me for a month and, and, and sit and observe. Because by the end of that month, we'll know which skills are teachable and which skills are things that you just have, right? And I suspect that the ability to context flip is something that you you can learn, but you start you have to learn it yourself. No one can teach you how to context flip. You're just going to have to throw yourself into the pool with all the sharks and swim and tread water and figure it out, right? Um, and I would be here for a resource to to talk about how I do it, but it's just going to be different person to person and, and what kind of space you need between projects. And if you have to hop from one meeting into the next or from a bathtub full of chicken nuggets to a podcast, mm -hmm. uh, I like how the bathtub is just filling with nuggets over time. If I had um, like, yeah. uh, actual podcast titles, that would be the name of this podcast, by the way. <laughs> Oh, you do not do you not do No, titles? I usually see like the person in the topic, but I don't know. It might be weird if someone sees like on their iTunes, like, oh, Felix Kramer on game production and bathtubs full of chicken nuggets. You know what? I'm going to do it anyway. Fuck I think it. you're going to do it. Yeah, yeah I, I think, think you're going to do it anyway. Yeah, solid. Um, but, you know, to context flip between those moments and then to also find the moments for yourself in there as well, right? I mean, because um, you have to, you have to sort of like take a moment and realize, okay, I was talking to Polytron. Now I'm speaking to a publisher or I'm scouting a game or whatever it is. Right. And I only have 10 minutes to do it. So let's just, let's just have I, my desk is a whiteboard. So my desk is actually like a, it's a, it is a whiteboard. It's a standing desk. There's a whiteboard. And I, it's just, there's just stuff like things written on it all day. Right. And I take photos of it throughout the day constantly uh, because I want to make sure I've got all this recorded. And so I'm constantly writing things down. And, and I think that, you know, there's, there is, a world in which I can do a few of those, right? There is a world in which I can run all of Polytron, the entire flipping company, and then also uh, work on a small thing like Tunic with Andrew one-on-one, -on -one, right? Um, it really does take healthy boundaries and the understanding that you can't do everything. And I am quite harsh on myself when it comes to that kind of stuff, but I'm 2019, 2019 is the year 2018, 2018 was the year when I stopped worrying about um, 
the fact that I'll never be uh, as rich of a, as a baby boomer. Mm-hmm. I say I say 2018 was the year I stopped worrying about money, but that's not true at all. <laughs> 2018 was the was the year I succumbed to the millennial experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, 2019 is going to be the year where I set like really healthy boundaries and um, and know my own work schedule is sufficient that I can be the best I am at a few jobs as opposed to work on many, many different things. Um, it's also the year I'm hoping more producers will pop out of nowhere uh, into a bathtub yeah. and I will be able to say, hi, I would love to share, like, would you like this project? This project needs you. Let's have, uh, let's have drinks and discuss what this project needs and whether you're a good fit. Um, so any freelance producers out there, hit me up. They might be listening. This seems like the perfect, you're essentially like, creating a talent scout company where you're finding producers and then you're sending producers to teams. I'm not joking. That is actually, yeah. I mean, I I spoke to, I've spoken to a few people. I spoke with um, a dear friend Lulu about this last year where she was like, why don't we do that? Why don't we make a company where we, and this was years ago, actually, now that I think about it. Um, why don't we have like an agency basically, right? Yeah. And I was like, because I would never ask someone to do what I do. I would never ask someone to put themselves out there in this way. And it, and all that I was saying in the time, and I look back on it now, was that I don't know how to train someone yet. All I was saying was like, I don't have the perspective yet in this industry to say, here is the skill, here are the boundaries you should set. Here's a skill set that's valuable. Here's the most efficient way to get it done. Let's all go do it together, right? Or let's individually do it from from this um, standpoint. And like, I now feel like we're coming up on that. And I think that it would be really cool to see more of this happening. So the plan is next year to have something like that and to be able to provide it to the industry in a much broader sense, right? To not say like, I'm on these five projects, but to some, some projects just need consulting. Great. Let's set that up. What's that package look like? Some people need like a part-time producer. Great. Let's pair you with the person that best fits your team. And then over time we can all, because there's several of us or many of us, hopefully um, we can bring wisdom to that pool and constantly be updating each other on the experience um without breaking any ndas obviously um but yeah that's the dream right that's the dream is having a, a, a team that can handle much more than one person could ever handle that's, so. that sounds like a great idea like finding people this way because I, I do think you're right that it's you need to actually get to know that person and understand do you have the mindset for this do you have that there are the teachable skills but there are just things where i remember in my interview for this current job there were certain things where it's kind of a like we think you'll be good for this, but sometimes you don't know until you're in the situation and you're balancing things and you're talking to people and you're in these these circumstances where the production mindset is something that you kind of just have or you don't. Uh, and you can learn how to create milestones and schedules and and time estimates for clients and everything like that. But if you don't have a certain brain and certain tendencies, it might just not be there. I, yeah, I agree. I mean, we all have to admit that we don't have every skill, right? Yes. That's just it. And finding someone who has that skill is the smartest thing, is the wisest thing. Forget smartest. It's the wisest thing you can do for yourself, right? And like, uh, I I will say now, the thing I'm really hoping as well to see in the near future is creative leads not insisting that they are also their own studio leads yes. so that they don't have to be the person to admit they don't have the skill set. Their studio lead can say, hi, here's my observation. You're excellent at your job. I'm going to, while you're doing your job, I'm going to go hire you someone who can help you. And I think that a lot of indie studios fail themselves in this way because they're very worried. They're very concerned about both being the creative lead and the studio lead. And so they don't have time to go scout that person. They just don't, it's not, it is a time constraint. I mean, like we are finite beings, right? So yeah, um, yeah I'm really hoping I see more of that as well. Like uh, 
studio leads, um, again, that might not be a full-time position. I mean, it is a full-time, it's a very full-time position, but I would be open to a model in which your producer and your studio lead are uh, people with the skill set you need and you are left to do the creative work yourselves. I'm speaking directly to devs right now. <laughs> Please just make the games. Oh my God. And, and hire people to ship them right from day zero. Hire people to ship them from day zero. So. I feel like we just solved the world's problems. That was really the point of this, and we did it. Uh, well, last major thing, you, you talked about your goals for this year, your goals for next year, but what are you working on right now that you can actually talk about? And maybe more importantly, where can people find you on social media if they want to reach out to you? Yeah, so my major projects are uh, I am a I am the producer and uh, general uh, get things done person over at Polytron. I also work with Finji, uh, who handles, they publish Tunic and they're making Overland and they did Night in the Woods and they're now doing a new game called Wilmot's Warehouse. Um, and I work as a scout over at Fellow Traveler. So if you are a dev listening and you have a game to pitch, please feel free to head over, head over to fellowtraveler.games and you can submit there because um, we're always taking on projects. And I'm leaving people out. Who else do I work for? Uh, I feel like I probably named some of this. There's Polychon, yeah. there's Tunic, there's Neocab, but that's part of Fellow Traveler now. Uh, like awesome games. I someone is going to email me later and be like, oh, and I'm sorry, and I work with Panic, um, who were the publishers of Firewatch, and now are making uh, are publishing Untitled Goose Game. Ooh, yes, oh, that name is so good. It is good. It is a goodie. Um, and they are wonderful, wonderful people. So I'm working with them as well. So, um, so lots of stuff, and uh, you can find me on social media at. Uh, on all social media as at Lego butts Lego, like the thing you collect as an adult because you didn't have enough of it as a kid, mm -hmm. Butts like the thing everybody sits on, uh, sensibly, I guess. Uh, and, uh, that is me. I'm there everywhere. I believe I'm everywhere there. I think so. Uh, that's pretty good branding. Like yeah, if you can get the Lego butts everywhere. I mean, or at Felix at Felix.zone. That's, that's my email. I need a, I need yeah. a dot zone. That's a Jeff Gersman. That's a Jeff Gersman special. Yeah. He DM'd me one day. I was like, Felix.zone is available. And I refuse to tweet this because it won't be if I tweet it. <laughs> so you need to eat that up right now. And I was like, thank you, Jeff, for this gift. Oh, it's the perfect yeah. name. Maybe you should thank just you. get like bathtub full of chicken nuggets. Dot, dot zone. Dot zone. I'm this buying it right now. Stand by. Stand All by. Right, I, won't, I won't publish this until you've confirmed that you have this. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. Felix, thanks for doing this. This is... This has been fun. This is something that I'm now getting into with production. And it's, I've had so many questions coming in, but now that I'm learning it, it, it's interesting and fun to talk to other people who are, who are passionate about it, who have an understanding of it and who see value in it. So even though I've got a billion requests to talk to you, I'm happy I waited till this very moment to do so and awesome. can't wait to see all the cool stuff you're working on actually come out. Yeah. Cool. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Thanks everyone for listening. Hopefully tune back in for the next episode of the 1099.